0: Welcome, everyone. I'm Sandra Bargeman. A few years ago, I wrote and performed a solo show called The Edge of Every Day, which was an exploration of the rough edges and contradictions we all face and grapple with. The show hit a nerve, and the relevance of the topic would only grow over time more than I could have foreseen. So, here we are. Real talk with real people, sharing stories and perspectives that spark. Provocative invitations to leap out of what's safe pressure, on the edge of every day. Down, Thanks for listening. Down on you, no Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me on the edge of every day here on talkradio.nyc. Tonight, we are live in the hive with author and UN humanitarian Trudy E. Bauer for our 55th episode entitled The Hunger Paradox. For those of you who have become loyal listeners here on the Edge of Every Day, thank you so much for spending time with me and my guests. Our numbers keep growing, and I have you to thank. I couldn't do it without you. So please continue to share this podcast with friends and family, and take a moment to subscribe to my YouTube channel, Sandra Bargeman On the Edge of Every Day if you're tuning in for the first time welcome to the edge if you like what you hear and you want to check out my past episodes with my inspiring guests you can find them on talkradio.nyc on your favorite podcast platforms and on my youtube channel again that's sandra bargeman on the edge of every day this show is about pushing boundaries and exploring rough edges Through conversations and shared stories with friends and colleagues, it's my hope that we can begin to understand our edges. And what I mean by edges is those places where we are fearful, those places where we are resistant to change, those places where paradoxes and contradictions live in our beliefs and in our understandings, both about ourselves and about the world around us. Listen, we live in edgy, tumultuous times, and people are complex. The more we recognize our own edges and get real about them, the more we can help others to do the same, and that, I fully believe, can help to change the world. So thanks again for tuning in. And without further ado, it is time to introduce our guest this week. A native of Princeton, New Jersey, Trudy E. Bauer studied French literature at Smith College and international affairs at Columbia University. Inspired by the writings of Victor Hugo and an internship at the United Nations in New York, she embarked on an overseas career with care, cooperative for assistance and relief everywhere, and the U.N. World Food Program, spanning 30 years where her interests in social justice, languages and travel intersected. She managed food assistance programs in India, Bangladesh, Mozambique, Burundi, Madagascar, Côte d'Ivoire and Ghana, the latter two as country director. Her most challenging assignments were working in countries where political instability and violence coexisted with managing food emergencies and raising her two daughters. In 2011, Trudy began co-authoring The Hunger Crime. She has contributed articles to two published works of nonfiction. This is her first work of fiction. Hello, and welcome, Trudy Bauer. You're going to need to unmute, my friend.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Reverend Sandra. And oh, uh,
0: please, just call me Sandra. I appreciate that.
1: Uh, this is my uh, first uh, live uh, interview, so it will be a, a new experience. For oh, every- yay, very exciting. You're diving right in. Well, you have so
0: much to share with the world, so I i know that this must be a little a wee bit unnerving for you but i i appreciate you just plowing through and doing it because i know you're gonna have to do a bunch of them so i'm i'm happy to be your guinea pig
1: i'm very happy you are
0: (laughs) well i'm 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 truly truly thrilled that you're here trudy and um it your work is incredible in the world and i can't wait to share it with our listeners but I like to start out my show first and foremost to share how I know my guests and I don't know you personally, but I've met you through Sam Lebowitz, our fearless leader here at talkradio.nyc and you can check out his show, The Con- uh, Conscious Consultant on Thursdays. Um,
1: but did now, do you know Sam personally? Yes, I've been in uh, some workshops with him. Oh, I love
0: that. He's a great guy. We love him. And well, so of course you came very highly recommended. And then when we had our lovely uh, pre-chat, you and I just clicked and I had, I was so blown away by, I, I knew that I so wanted you on the show because I felt like I was one of the listeners that I really somehow had not kept this whole crisis on my radar like so many people that's why it's so important to me to have you on the show that i was kind of overwhelmed at how little i knew so it's beautiful that you're coming on and going to mentor us through this process and inspire all of us to learn more about this this crisis so before we dive into it, I, uh, one of my, my questions that I like to ask all of my, my guests, because it's, it's an interesting question to me to watch how my, my guests answer it. We all do so many things in this world and we've traveled all of these paths. And in today's world, we are re-examining what identity even means. So my question to you and to all of my guests is what identity do you Trudy lead with in the world?
1: I have been reflecting on that and uh, my calling my vocation became I would became a, a humanitarian mm. and it was after retiring early in 2012, so I have not been working for a decade, that I realized I'm still called to service as a humanitarian and I'm searching how to serve now uh, without the institution. And that's when- The I'm auspices
0: here, of that, yeah, makes sense.
1: Maybe the book would be a an advocacy tool, a way of, of um, finding my networks to address hunger in a different way without being on the front lines myself, <laughs> because I've done that. And I, um, my, my nervous system is, is very happy to rest for a bit to have,
0: uh, yeah, to have a break. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, not being on the front lines, absolutely, but but continuing to do your service work that you've been called, I love that humanitarian is the identity that you lead with. Of course. Um, you popped out of the womb, I'm sure, with a sense of service to the world, and that has inspired you to go into all of this work. So, so tell us before we dive into hunger and what hunger is and what the hunger paradox is. How did you, you, you had you, you went, you did a, a internship at the UN. I, was was your goal to work on the hunger crisis? Uh,
1: it's, it wasn't a goal at that time. Um, I I really was inspired by the French literature, and everyone knows Les Mis. Les Miserables. Because uh, it was the story I read in French, and the story of Jean Valjean, who's uh, condemned for 20 years for stealing a loaf of bread, Mm. and the great discrepancies between rich and poor, and Mm -hmm. how she had to prostitute herself to to raise her child. So it's about the wretched poor, and it always stuck with me, and then I just, uh, I, I was focusing on languages and then I took some courses in international affairs and then I got a, a master's at Columbia. And I really loved international affairs focusing on economic development. So the newly uh-huh. independent countries uh, from the colonial uh, powers were needing technical support and, and different types of support in developing their own uh social safety nets, their own um, capacities and all these areas yeah. that had been led by colonial administrators. So it, I was on the cusp of that post-colonial um, helping Shift. to- Shift, awakening.
2: Africa,
1: because my first post in Africa was in Mozambique. It, it had only been independent 10 years. So it was very exciting and optimistic. It was a very mm. optimistic time, even though there was a, a lot of um, wars. <laughs> But people had hope. People had hope. So from I'm saying I went from international affairs and I went to the UN and I met a lot of the peacemakers. I saw Willie Brandt who was making overtures to East Germany, East Germany. Many of you don't know about that, but he made the rapprochement between East and West Germany that had been separated by World War II. And then I would see like Jimmy Carter and Andrew Young. So I really, um, I, I just felt a connection with the peacemakers and the social justice. So these things led me, when I had a job, I wrote job letters and I had three offers. One was in uh, the Department of Commerce, one was going to Japan, and one was going to India with care as an intern. And I just gravitated to going to India India. as an intern, not even a job. (laughs) Interesting.
0: (laughs) Did you feel calling to the Indian culture as well?
1: Well, I was bedone. sort of a
0: visceral connection.
1: It, it, not not at the beginning, no. But I, um, one of our uh, professors had been ambassador there, so he gave me a lot of background. So I, I really was looking forward to it, and I, I loved that year in India. And I, I was twenty five, and I, I learned oh. so much about. You know community initiative and the um, discrepancies between the very rich and the very poor and it was such a rich culture and nobody knew about its rich history and its achievements and physics and science and you know it, it's a whole undiscovered world there and it, it was it was really fascinating
0: oh my goodness yeah well the the the, the time that you went there you you've witnessed an incredible Global shift in people's understanding of what uh, uh, the of a global community of knowing what's happening around the world.
1: Yes, I've seen countries go forward, and I've seen countries go backward, and uh,
3: mm. yeah,
1: um, many of the countries I had been in were among the least developed, and they had challenges politically. I. I enjoyed every post for different reasons. And I most loved connecting with the communities and my female counterparts. And I really felt we were making a difference. Whatever program it was, it was a reforestation or it was, uh, my favorite was school feeding because you're investing in a child in the present, Mm. getting, so they learn, they stay in school, they don't drop out. They get married later, particularly girls um, and especially girls. And, and especially then
0: the, girls are' beautiful.
1: So that for me is 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 my cause, really girls education because I saw what a difference it made. And um, yeah, I, I think we accomplished so much and you feel it at the community level whereas at a political level, you might think it's too daunting like in our world today, the challenges at the political level are, are seem overwhelming. But you kind of have to drill down and find the place, your entry point to make a difference where you, no matter what happened in my life, what happened in the world, I I would go home and say, I fed a kid in school today. So just got to find your gift and what's your entry point and and where you can make a difference because the global picture can feel overwhelming. Overwhelming as was your question. Well, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) it's it it can be quite simply answered or it's it's very complex and most people feel powerless as i i do on how to make a difference in yeah. all the systems and the politics and the and the players and who are the players but it's beyond most of us to to penetrate that
0: well and and if it's overwhelming we don't stay attached to hope and well, and the goal is to stay attached to hope, and which keeps us making choices and taking steps and action. And to be okay with, to your point, these small, what may feel like small steps are enormous. If all of us did it, it would we would change the world. And on that note, we've got to take a break. And when we come back with Trudy Bauer, we're going to talk about what is the hunger paradox and Mm -hmm. what is hunger. And then we're going to dive into her book and hear more stories about her incredible life doing this great work of service. When we come back with Trudy Bauer on the edge of every day. Stay tuned, everyone. Trudy Bauer okay well we talk a lot about paradox of course here on the edge of every day. Um, the tension between opposites is 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 the focus of of our understanding of what the edge really is and so when I I read um, when I was doing my research on you when you taught you said we need to talk about the hunger paradox and to read it was such again such a stick over the head like wow so the hunger paradox i have a little thing that i i or i can let you say what is the hunger paradox so what tell us what is the hunger
1: paradox and see if our our uh it's
0: it's the, the the hunger is on the rise that we have enough food on the planet we create and grow and have enough food on our planet to feed all 8 billion people. And yet we have all this this food crisis.
1: Yes, well, that is absolutely correct. And actually the term was coined by one of our former presidents, Dwight D. Eisenhower 1960. And mm-hmm. from his experiences in war and traveling, he had uh, observed there were hundreds of millions of people suffering from hunger and malnutrition, whereas countries like the US had these vast surpluses. And he had the brainchild to envision a multilateral institution, the World Food Program, yeah. as part of the UN system to help uh equi- equilibrate the supply and demand and donor countries would transfer their surpluses to the newly independent uh developing countries so that uh he his idea was implemented in 61 as an experiment and in 63 it became instituted and here we are it's 60th birthday year and who could imagine the stars would be aligned that our book would come out the same year as the 60th birthday of the World Food Program. So it's it's really quite, uh, it's a beautiful uh, circle there. And the other hunger paradox was expressed by a current executive director, uh, who's an American, a uh, former governor, uh, David Beasley. And he was making the comparison between all the wealth generated by during the COVID period. Like at the height of COVID, there was like $2.7 trillion in the stock market generated. And he was begging billionaires for 5 billion to save 30 million people from dying of hunger. That was his um, updating of the hunger paradox. So you see the extremes are are becoming even- Are
0: becoming more extreme.
1: More extreme and and, um, very sad. Um, Very, very sad. So that's that's the hunger paradox.
0: Well, on one of the websites that I that I am doing my research, um, it, it it said, what is one of the questions was, what is hunger? Which I found uh, 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 that was, a, a again, a really stark question. And that it's more far more complicated than, pe- you know, just being hung, feeling hunger.
1: Well, it is feeling hunger. It's the body telling you you need food of course um, but but many different definitions um fao uh, the food and agriculture organization nwp they tend to say hunger equals undernourishment meaning you don't have the energy calories you need to live
0: malnutrition
1: a, a yeah. healthy life now nutrition is a vast uh, array of definitions like uh, obesity is malnutrition so there are many forms mm-hmm. of malnutrition but hunger they tend to uh link it to calories for survival, the energy calories Uh to survive. So that's
0: well. And I also appreciated how it, it talked about the interconnectedness of poverty and inequality and conflict, political conflict and climate change and weak government and health systems, all of this driving, you know, to understand the problems, the crises that we are all like the climate crises, which we're going to get into as well, but that, that they're all linked.
1: Well, I was reflecting on your very complex question. And actually, the the hunger crisis was a perfect storm of, of four uh, threats, we call them in, in the emergency preparedness lingo. Mm-hmm. Um, the number one cause of hunger today is conflict. Yes. And if out of every dollar that WP spends, eighty cents will go to the man-made disasters versus development, building capacity, supporting f- small farmers. Yeah. So, eighty cents is going to saving lives due to conflict, which which is a band aid. It, it it's not getting to the core issues. Right. Okay. So there's there's four causes of the global crisis. The number one was conflict. The conflict. second, the, the um, climate change events. Yeah, actually, we noticed these trends in the 90s, Um, we were 80% development and 20% emergencies in the 90s. And all of a sudden, between the war in Yugoslavia, and then there was drought in South Africa and drought in the horn. So we were facing three mega emergencies at once. And we started having to plan for more big emergencies every year and and the donors were shifting their funds to emergencies so practically overnight we went from 80 percent of our funding to development to 90 percent to emergencies so the development funds sort of dwindled and and that really was harmful to long-term sustainability because the emergencies were saving lives but then we had to move into we, we had a progression where we just didn't stop feeding. We tried to get them back into their livelihoods and support them with tools and seeds and resettlement and working with HCR to bring back refugees. But having you know this development money to to plant trees, to do more agroforestry and land reclamation, mm-hmm. this is a function of also donor priorities that they want food to be used to save lives first, and, and they felt food aid was expensive. However, since then, it's no longer in-kind, it's over 60% cash, and we've really empowered the recipient countries and communities because we're buying the food either in the country or in the community from small farmers or in the region or internationally. So we're doing less of a transfer of our food to their country to using- Getting those food.
0: systems in place for them.
1: So they're they're we're building markets for their production, and and so it's very exciting how the aid um, paradigm has changed. So it, it's it's not transferring surpluses, but it's giving the equivalent in money. So you're improving, you know, farmer capacity and market to market
0: structures. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That's a hopeful comment in the middle of this conversation. But before the climate change, um, yeah, the second one is is climate change events. So we haven't had all the the um funds to really prepare as as I felt and why is that? Be, because emergency because nobody were, believed. Yeah. In it. No because it was always a priority to save lives and move on and, and mm. recover and move on. Yeah. But I think we see the same mentalities in all our governments in terms of prevention or repair of infrastructure. It always gets shifted and and to to deal with other priorities or to spend less money, but the long term investments seem to be put off until something breaks and then they yeah. want to fix it. Uh, yeah. Um, <sighs> I I want to say, but oh, for me, the climate um, connection, this, this whole hunger crisis has just revealed the fragility of our systems. Yeah. Our- institutions and our systems in all the areas so before I forget them all but I I'd say the number one was conflict then there was um uh climate events mm-hmm. and COVID. COVID COVID and then um costs so those were like threats that that really decimated developing countries in terms of indebtedness and they didn't have the COVID vaccines so they were they were sick longer and countries like China the supply chains were disrupted and the, the last one, of course, was the war in Ukraine, where Ukraine fed 400 million people and then became a beneficiary of food assistance because yeah. they have enough food to feed themselves. So we have all of these um, elements of this global crisis, and although the food and the and the sort of fuel prices have more or less stabilized, the elements of the fragility are still there. I mean we have seen a lot of aggregated wealth and a lot of the food chains are and globalization has led to a few suppliers controlling all of the all of it. and and countries opt to bring in the cheaper uh grain import rather than investing in their own production which we happened to be doing when I was there in sort of the 2000 we were trying to produce rice in in West Africa and it was too expensive for us to buy compared to Asia. So our rules wouldn't allow us to buy it unless they met the, the parity in, in the international price. But that even the the country couldn't afford it. So they the government rather bring bring the cheap Asian rice in.
2: Oh my goodness!
1: So the the supply chains have been severely disrupted by, uh, yeah, by by COVID. But they were already fragile. And as we know, globalization didn't benefit everybody, which is why we're having a lot of our um, struggles now with inflation and, and um, jobs and communities yes. that disappear because uh, you know the steel mills go out of business and things like that. So yeah, we've had a perfect storm. And um, I think we've seen the fragility of our institutions, our investment in public health our um, emergency preparedness. I mean, we did pandemic pre- preparedness in the late 90s, early 2000s uh-huh. we with the militaries. We trained all over the world, the UN. But then our country was not prepared, which was shocking to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Truly shocking.
1: So uh- the, the final thing about <coughs> the storm is that if the number one cause is conflict, hunger is a failure of governance and political will,
2: yes.
1: as is the climate crisis. It is a failure of government commitment and, and a political will. Mm-hmm. Until we can address those, these bigger root causes cannot be addressed. Exactly. And that's where we, we cannot address-
0: solve these issues without getting real.
1: as citizens, I I, I guess uh, we have to be vocal, we have we we may have to sit out on the street like uh, uh, Greta Thunberg or, or, you know, have a movement that will. Well,
0: and I think that we do, but but we have to be even more vocal. And, And that's this is a perfect segue. We've got to take a break. We've all got to become more vocal, even more vocal. And your book is a part of that. So, when when we come back, no, I know so. When we come back with Trudy Bauer, we're gonna dive full on into her book that she's co-authored, uh, The Hunger Crime and the Power of Storytelling to Educate. When we come back with Trudy Bauer on the Edge of Every Day, stay tuned.
5: Are you passionate about the conversation around racism,
1: At www.talkradio.nyc, now broadcasting twenty-four hours
0: a day. Chipping. with Trudy Bauer so I'm going to need you to unmute here I am so congratulations the hunger crime is here in the world on the 60th anniversary amazing what's also amazing is that you started writing this book in 2011 with your partner John
1: Krishi,
0: Krishi. Uh, shout out to John.
1: Here's are pic- thinking about
0: you. We're celebrating. Oh, I love it. So, um so what tell us the story. What was the motivation to write this book um with John?
1: Uh, many motivations. Uh we started at the d- in 2011 we were both working and it was the period when they had two of the biggest uh, disasters in history. One was the um Haiti earthquake which happened in the capital which decimated everything, the infrastructure, the banking systems. And and it unfolded in 2010 and we were both in headquarters so we were, we were close to all of the the nerve center of of how it um how it how the response was mounted. And then the next year we had again, the Somali drought, which uh, yes. was a drought that had killed 260 million. So we say it's topical because now we're in a fourth year of Somalia drought, and and there's still millions of people who are, are on the brink of famine. Mm-hmm. And uh, Haiti is, is subject to had another earthquake it has uh, gang violence. It has food insecurity. It has cyclones, uh, hurricanes, and it's it's a uh, it's a really tough place. It's 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 one of the most affected by multi-emergencies. So after ten years, you know, we haven't really made much progress in, no. in prevention um, because these are political. Issues
0: again political will
1: place i mean they do have a weak government in somalia um and and haiti has no government yeah the time being so these are these are really challenging issues and and also very unsafe countries to work in so because we were there uh we used these inspired by all these true events of the stories of the people who worked there like we ourselves did not work in those countries i worked in africa um, John worked in, you know, also Africa and a few places. But for these emergencies, we we had the stories from our colleagues. So wow. a lot of stories are based on true events. So we try to give the perspective of famine from the point of view of a village uh, suffering from famine and what their choices were, and particularly we follow a woman named Suhila, The choice is to migrate or to die, and, and then they head to the border to try to get to the refugee camp. Um, we we have the protagonist Bentano who who leads a mission into Somalia and has an event there and it's upended his life and he's trying to deal with uh, how do you say the collateral damage of all of uh, all of the danger that he's been confronted with and so it's also it's it's layered it's again thriller, in events but it's a hero's journey as yes well. indeed because it's how uh, Bentano he finds his way back. To, to peace and hope and joy mm-hmm.
0: after after
1: giving away a lot and, and suffering and and uh, going through PTSD. So I, I think there's a little of, of this story for everyone, really, who suffered trauma, I think, of the military. But we wanted this book to be highly entertaining because it is a tr- crime thriller, very fast. Yeah. It's a very light plot with the sub text of the hero's journey um, so we wanted it to be exciting and like a roller coaster but also against a backdrop of true humanitarian events so i say it's about hunger and it's about hope so we wanted to here's the paradox people to feel hopeful that this one man navigated his life and ended up on the other side and how we how he's been inspired by all by all the other actors and his bromance with his african mentor. So it's
0: Oh, interesting. These okay. are
1: people we know so they all know who they are. But it also was a, a community effort because a lot of I, when I acknowledgments we had a lot of our colleagues give their stories and and I read the early uh manuscripts and read the, the current manuscripts and do testimonials. So it's not just our book, it's the book of our community, and it's a window into our lives, our sacrifices, our commitments, mm. and, and who we are as an institution and people working for this wonderful your institution.
0: legacy and the service that you, you have provided. You mentioned PTSD. Did, did you go through any of that in your work? Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. I mean, we're—I'm—I'm I'm chuckling, but my God, I can only imagine.
1: Well, it, it's not always the logical things, uh, the things. I, I mean, I went through seven coup attempts. I, I went through two, uh, you know, presidential assassinations, and the things that should have given me PTSD were were not necessarily that. But there were a lot of events, like my daughter's car accident, where she could have died, and it, I was in Africa, and I couldn't get good expertise and, you know, things like personal things, traumatizing. Um, And I think those events in trying to protect them in a bedroom, when we have army going door to door looting and that kind of thing. So it was the trauma of trying to protect them that that really took a lot out of me. When I was alone, I I felt, I always felt safe. I, I always say when, in one of Jane Goodall's movies, she said that, the snakes never bothered her cuz she belonged there and i never felt personally threatened but once i had children I, I you know i had to be i had to take care of the staff i had to evacuate them from the office then i had to try to get home in the middle of these coups and pick up my kids at school and if, you know there were a lot of conflicting priorities oh <laughs> like, my yeah absolutely it's also a woman's journey and i i'm i'm hoping to do my memoirs cuz i didn't have an ending but uh you know this my story is also kind of interesting, and, as I said, how women came up in in the area of international humanitarianism because at the beginning, women were not in, admitted to to these professional positions
0: oh my I mean and meanwhile, I it's, it's affecting the women and children the most
1: yeah, well, in the, I think it was the early seventies, care opened their doors to posting women overseas. And then the UN had a commitment to gender uh, equality and recruitments. So that's when I started at 85, they were looking for women. And of course I'd been in a sub office in Bangladesh for two years by myself. So I had the experience to show them I could do this because Mm -hmm. they they didn't believe that women could go out there. And uh, they thought, oh, my first boss wouldn't let me travel because he said I'd be raped. Um, So I had to like face him down, but in the end, we, we could, we could do it. We, we, we did it. Um,
0: Of course you did.
1: Apprehensions. What was really exciting. We had a female executive director, so she started mentoring and giving leadership to, to professionals. We got, we got promotions. We got to be higher level managers and at the, at the bottom, at the other link to the chain, we're giving food aid and she insisted that women become members of the committees and they're written into our agreements and the women became the card holders. So the food went directly in the hands of the women instead of the men because the men might barter it for alcohol or cigarettes. So she revolutionized how we put uh, hunger solutions in the hands of women, the women. managers and as recipients so it was an exciting time to see that in the 90s because before women couldn't get beyond the sort of low professional levels there were no, no Is that still in place now? No no it's it's she she did a great job yeah when, I That's think sad. when I entered it was 13% professional women and um and now it's I I I don't know what the figure is but it's over 30% or 40% uh I think that, you know, depending on the leadership, um, sometimes women don't always feel their voices are heard. Um, it depends who's leading and it depends who the influencers are. So yeah. you have, in other words, it's like democracy. You have to be vigilant because your rights can be taken away very quickly. As, oh,
0: oh, as we have seen, all of the, the bubbles that we have been living in have been popped all of the strides that we feel have are non-negotiable now. Yes. Have seemingly just, the rug has been pulled. So this is a great segue into your coming back into the country in 2016. You had shared with me, you know, how overwhelming and, and bizarre to come back into the United States when, you know, when all of this major political shift was happening here in the United States.
1: I have to say, when I, I, I had hoped to retire in Italy, because I'd spent 15 years there because it's the headquarters. Headquarters,
0: of yes. Um,
1: however, they started enacting these global taxes so that they would tax me as an American and as an Italian resident. So it got complicated. So I came back. Uh, I was away 40 years and I didn't feel much like an American anymore. Mm. And when I came and I I heard the rhetoric and the polarization and it was very frightening to me because it's I'd been through something similar in Ivory Coast. It was the most stable country in Africa. It was the motor of West Africa. And next door in Liberia, they'd had two decades of civil war and they were warlords. But then the economy sort of had a downturn in, in Ivory Coast and they started talking about the immigrants and they're taking the jobs. Sound familiar? Oh, my Lord. Yeah. And I said, I said, but. I see it could happen here because there's a north-south issue. There's ethnicities. There's religion. But I said, these men are professors. They are businessmen. They're politicians. They're smart men. They're not going to let it happen. They did. It spiraled into civil war while I was there. I went through seven coup attempts. Then the country split in two into a civil war for 10 years. So after this trauma, I go to headquarters and then I I, I retire in 2012. And then in 2016 I come back. it's almost like I'm reliving Ivory Coast. So it was very traumatized. Yeah, I'm sure so when they had PTSD. The, when they had the elections this time, I kept saying to everybody get gas, you know, make sure you have cash. I mean I was ready in in many of these countries when you prepare for an election you stay at home and you prepare for anything. And then, and then the January 6th event where no one's in charge, I had that feeling like no one's in charge. No one's coming to the rescue. It is the most frightening feeling in the world to be in a country, to be in danger. And I know how those people felt in there trapped. No one's coming to rescue them. So this is, this is, I I I can't believe I'm living through this in my own country. It's it's heartbreaking because Mm. I thought my journey was over, (laughs) and the and the hardship was behind me. But but coming here at this time, maybe there's something for me to do here. I'm not well.
0: There most definitely is. And you you said I'm an
1: optimist, and I get I don't get too too down in the weeds. So I don't I don't read a lot of the stuff i see on i don't watch much tv i don't read a lot of news because i i just have to parse what i what i let into my brain yeah and but it's stay not in service i am pageant in the u.s retiring i've been more of a hermit than anything so this this could be my opportunity and both of us john and i to to find um find networks and find a voice and mm-hmm. this book it, it could reach many people in different ways. We have our own community. It celebrates our community, and most importantly, it honors humanitarianism. I don't think I spoke yes. about that, but I looked it up. It's the it's the val- belief in the value of human life. The human life, and this is something I think I'm hearing so much about humanity when Tyre was was m- murdered, and the and the care one of the spokespersons said, "You're going to see acts that defy humanity." Yes. So how we got to this point where human life has no value For
0: some has some. no value yes so, well we have to take a break Trudy um but this is this is um it's really it in a nutshell we're here this is where we those of us with a voice have to stand up and share it in a big way and you doing this podcast and writing your book and getting your story out and using the power of storytelling to educate people and for me to use this podcast as a platform all in the service of these challenging times in which we find ourselves so we're going to take a break we're going to come back for our last section and we're going to find out where you can get this book and It's launching on February 7th, and we'll share those details when we come back with Trudy Bauer on the edge of every day. Stay tuned.
3: Hey, everybody, it's Tommy D., the Nonprofit Sector Connector, coming at you from my attic.
0: Trudy Bauer. So The Hunger Crime by Trudy Bauer and John Cresci can be purchased on Amazon for on the 7th. It launches February 7th, launches on Amazon and you can get it, correct me if I'm wrong, for $1.99 for 24 hours, correct? Correct. So mark your calendars, folks. Run, don't walk to get this book on Kindle, uh, on Amazon. Um, I'm sure that there's a link on your website. The crime, um, the hungercrime.com is where you can find information about Trudy and John. And uh, again, about the book, the inspiration, etc., etc. Um, um. You are also on Twitter. T E B talks at T E B. I do my research, Trudy. Come on.
1: I I don't know how to use Twitter, but I am on it. I I saw you there. I was. It's all good. It's I'm great. learning.
0: It's it's a beautiful thing. This learning curve of life, <laughs> of getting our voices out in the world. I know social one media can drive us a little insane.
1: Yes. I say I have one more voice to include in this conversation before we run out of time. Oh, yeah. Can I can of I Of course, dive in. Well, I have I have Mother Teresa and I met her in Calcutta and um, she's often with me in my in my sort of consciousness. But she said And this spoke to me, we only know too well that what we are doing is nothing more than a drop in the ocean. But the drop would not, but if the drop were not there the ocean would be missing something. So in other words, every little bit we do matters. Yes. The gift that we are, the light that we bring. um, If you want to learn more, if you want to donate, the organization we worked for is wfp.org or there's a wfpusa.org and we are committed to women's empowerment girls education and school feeding programs and we will see how we can support them further beyond advocacy but right now we're doing advocacy because these programs are highlighted in the book as as the means to uh the expansion of of the women in the in the book, some of the women in the book.
0: Yeah, and the and the solving the the true solving of this issue, of course, through the women.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. Okay. Um. What else did? What else did you need? Other resources. That's what I wanted to. Um. I wanted, and I quickly wanted to touch on your memoirs as well. Uh, do you have any, you know, time when you're you started those in 2015? Any sort of sense of when that might be out in the world as well?
1: Uh, well, I didn't get very far. I I, I, only, I have 250 pages and I haven't gotten out of Ghana. So, <laughs> oh. So and I, I didn't have an ending, but um, I understand now. If I, I write, it will it will it will show itself to me. So of
0: course, it is I, a good, it, its own creative identity.
1: I hope now with with this experience of the hunger crime, which which really was meaningful to me. Mm. I, I love this story. I love this story. Um, so i I don't want to say a date because I just I will start working on it this year, and in next year, the year after i I hope that I will have something that could be a legacy for women. I also didn't know the age groups of the people who follow you. That would be interesting because we wanted to try to reach a younger audience. You know, the millennials coming up, mm-hmm. you know, what kind of leadership choices they're making.
0: Well, I have a diverse uh, listenership.
1: So that's good because mm-hmm. we hope this will appeal to many different segments. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And,
0: and I will continue to do anything, you know, when the seventh comes around to to promote this and make sure that I am in contact with some of the younger women in my life. And I urge my listeners to do the same, to share this with the younger generation coming up, help them use this story, use the power of storytelling to educate on this the vast web of these crises coming together. I mean, as we are seeing the system, all the systems breaking down, it, we've all got to use our voices to speak as to how it can, we can rebuild. So we are two minutes to our break. I want to thank you, Trudy Bauer. We've included all the places we can find you. You're also on LinkedIn Hi, and are we- you are- Facebook, so again, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, folks, and um, thehungercrime.com. February 7th, mark your calendar. Trudy Bauer, thank you so much for coming on the Edge of Every Day and sharing your story and your wisdom and your generous spirit. It's been a complete pleasure having you.
1: Well, thank you so much. It was it was lovely speaking with you. Mm.
0: And to my listeners, I thank you for spending this hour with me Um, in honor of the miserable and your love of of Victor Hugo. I am going to close our time together with a quote from him. Nations like stars are entitled to eclipse. All is well, provided the light returns and the eclipse does not become endless night. Dawn and resurrection are synonymous. The reappearance of the light is the same as the survival of the soul. And that is what your book speaks about. And that is what our work in the world speaks about. So thank you again, Trudy. And thank you to my listeners until we meet again next week. You are always at the edge of the miraculous. Take good care.